Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The angels say they bring good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Do you believe the news? Teaching team member Caleb Click starts the new series, Good News of Great Joy, with this sermon entitled, The Announcement of the Messiah, which covers Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at Perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church family. Our scripture reading is from Luke 2, 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip in conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. Gracious Father, we ask you this morning, would you make the good news good? Would you take this text in all of its beauty and its wonder, and Lord, would you show us Jesus? Lord, I think of the words of Luther the scripture or the swaddling clothes that hold your son. Would you unveil him to us now in Jesus' name? Amen. Sometimes, sometimes we get news that changes everything. Uh, a few days ago in the New York Times, they published an article about a woman named Melanie Walden, who earlier this month, she got news like that. Uh, Melanie Walden, by her own admission, she she'd lived a hard life. Uh, She had spent 51 years yearning to be loved and to be wanted by someone, by anyone, and spent 51 years feeling profound disappointment because it never seemed to come. 
She'd had to flee an abusive home when she was 15. She'd lived on the streets and survived as a prostitute. She'd been arrested. She'd had three marriages and three children, all of which she had given up for adoption. And now, at 51 years of age, she's found religion and her life has settled down just a little bit and she's working as a janitor cleaning churches. But then earlier this month, she opened up her Facebook account and there was a message waiting for her. And at first she thought it was a scam. You know the kinds of messages I'm talking about, the ones where you don't know who the person is and what it says sounds way too good to be true. But she couldn't shake it. Because here's what it said. It was from two women who said they were her sisters and from one man who said he was her father. And what they wanted her to know was this. 51 years ago, in 1971, a woman claiming to be our babysitter stole a one-year-old little girl from our home. And we have spent five decades looking for that little girl. And we now have DNA evidence saying that you are that child. Your name is not your name. Your family is not your family. Your life is not your life. I am your father and we are your sisters and we want you home. And just like that, her family, her life changed. Because suddenly she had a new name, a new family, a new identity, and a new future. All because of one bit of good news. And this woman, who for 51 years had felt unloved and unwanted, she discovered now she had a family that loved and wanted her. As she put it in the article... One of the first things that came to my mind was I finally have a father and mother that want me and they love me. I finally have people that love me. I mean, can you imagine the impact a message like that has on somebody? The way that would shift your entire perspective on the world. I mean, that's, that's news that remakes your world, isn't it? Luke 2 offers even better news than that. You know, we, what we just heard read, this story of, of Jesus' birth and the angels announcing the arrival of the Messiah, I mean, we, we have heard this a million different times, Christian or not. Uh, you've heard it immortalized in song. It's enshrined on a lot of our mantles in the form of nativity scenes with little thatch roof stables and angels hanging out on the sides while this peaceful baby sleeps on a manger in the middle. But if we really grasp if we really begin to appreciate what God is announcing here in the arrival of the Messiah, this is news that remakes your world in a way far more profound than the news remade Melanie Walden's. Because here's what it says to you. No matter who you may be, no matter what you may have experienced, no matter what you may feel, you are not unwanted and unloved. You don't just have an earthly father and mother who love and want you and have sought you out. You have a heavenly one who so wanted and loved you, he sent his son to save you. And who is that savior according to Luke 2? First, he's the savior who enters and bears our troubles. I mean, these first seven verses are strange. They're weird. We've heard them so many times, I don't think we realize just how strange they are. But, but think about what's taken place. God has been promising all through the scriptures, from the moment of the fall in Genesis 3, that he was going to send one from the line of the woman, 
born of the house of David, that ancient king of Israel, who was going to redeem everything that sin had broken. He would restore and heal all of this broken world. And Luke 1, the first chapter, has been telling you over and over and over again, this is that child. God in human flesh is visiting and redeeming his people, and yet notice this. If you read those first seven verses and had known nothing else, what would you think? You wouldn't think this was an extraordinary birth or an extraordinary child. You wouldn't think there was anything here that should merit your attention at all. There's no Rafiki holding up Simba and saying, here's the future king. There's not even a father prophesying over his son like you see with Zechariah and John the Baptist in Luke 1. There's nothing. There's nothing saying this is the son, this is the birth of a king or let alone the son of God. There's just nothing there. What's striking, it's not the glory of the moment. It's the apparent humility of the moment. The dust and the dirt that is everywhere apparent. Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, he is born into a powerless and poor family. First, they're powerless. In verse 1, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, two things should immediately strike out, stand out to you. One, this is an event that Luke is telling you. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. This is happening in history, in real space and in real time. But second, there's this. He's telling you right from the start, Mary and Joseph, they are members of an oppressed people living under the thumb of a tyrant king who all the world acclaims as quasi-divine. Because here's who Caesar Augustus is. Caesar Augustus is a man who is acclaimed by the Roman world by these titles. He is the son of a god, according to the Romans. He's the Lord, according to the Romans. He's even, and you should know this one, the prince of peace, according to the Romans. And why are they calling this man these titles? Because when Caesar Augustus took power, he united the Roman world and brought with it an uneasy peace. He bound everything together and suddenly the economy is flourishing. Their military is dominating. Rome's glory is reaching its, peace, its peak, but it is an uneasy peace that is born of violence and maintained by oppression. And you see it right here in this census. This is Caesar Augustus, the God King, saying to all the world, you, you belong to me. Your property, it's mine. Your allegiance, you owe it to me. And when I say come, you come. And notice what Mary and Joseph do. Mary is nine months pregnant and something traveling from where they live to Joseph's family's hometown. That's an 80-mile journey for a nine months pregnant woman across harsh terrain. It could kill her and it could kill the baby, and yet how do they respond? They do what powerless people do. They just go. You know, in our modern age, we'd go and try to file an exception, wouldn't we? We'd say, you know, my, my wife's about to pop. This could hurt her and the baby, and the government would probably go, okay, we'll figure out some way to navigate that. Uh, not here. Because if you want Roman peace, guess what you have to do? You submit to Roman rule. 
And if you don't, you suffer. And so Mary and Joseph, they hear the word and they go. They're powerless. You know, it reminds me of the stories we were hearing when the war in the Ukraine started. Of all these pregnant women fleeing across the countryside and then giving birth in basements and in subway stations, sometimes to the sounds of bombs falling. These women who had been reduced to utterly destitute circumstances through no fault of their own, but simply because they were powerless in the face of what had happened to them. That's Jesus' family. And they're not just powerless, they're poor. You know, Luke wants you to see it. When Mary gives birth, it's not surrounded by friends and relatives. It's not in the comfort of a guest room with people attending to her every need. It's not in some fancy hospital bed like we would think of. It's not even in a nice room in a hotel. She's surrounded by the animals in a stable, which is not what we're thinking of, but most likely a cave. And Jesus? Newborn baby Jesus? He's wrapped in swaddling clothes. That part's normal. But then he's laid not in a crib. He's laid in a feeding trough for animals. They're poor. Later in Luke 2, Mary and Joseph go and make sacrifices in the temple. And guess what kind of sacrifices they are? Not the sacrifices of the rich, but of the poor. If you were to stumble upon this family in this moment, you would probably feel a lot of things. Sadness, compassion, maybe, maybe even anger that someone would do this to them. But I'll wager this, you wouldn't be drawn to worship, would you? And yet Luke 2 says that is precisely what you should be doing. Because the poverty and the powerlessness, that's the point. It is the love of God on display because everything is exactly as God intended it. And how do you know that? Because while Caesar was directing the world, God was directing Caesar. Hundreds of years before, God told his people through the prophet Micah that the Messiah, the Savior, he wasn't going to be born in the town of Nazareth where Joseph and Mary lived. He was going to be born in the town of Bethlehem where David was born. Caesar thinks he's exercising his power. What Luke says is, no, this is actually God exercising his. What Caesar intended for evil, God intends for good. And if God rules over even pagan kings, that means he rules over these circumstances too. He could have raised Jesus up in any set of circumstances, couldn't he? He could have laid him in the lap of luxury. He could have wrapped him in silk and laid him on a king's bed. He, he could have surrounded him with the very best of things. And yet God, in his wisdom, in his love, in his mercy, he chose this. And we can't say it's because God couldn't do something different. Obviously, he could have. There's only one explanation. This is what God wanted to do. He wanted Jesus to be poor and powerless. And so the question is, why would God want that? And the answer the scripture gives over and over and over again is he did it for us. Because it is only a savior who goes down into the depths of the human condition. 
into the poverty and the powerlessness that if we have eyes to see, it claims us all. It is only a Savior who goes down into the depths who can raise us also to be with himself. As it says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, though he had everything, for your sake, he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Notice what it doesn't say. Jesus is not promising us that if we come to him and we follow him, that our lives are going to be easy. Mary and Joseph are following God right now, and where are their lives? Poor and powerless in the eyes of the world. They're suffering. The Christian life, as Jesus says in Luke 9, it comes with a cross. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself daily, pick up his cross, and follow me. Jesus, Jesus does not promise you a life free from suffering or pain. He doesn't light, offer you a life free from hardship. But notice what this text does tell us. It is in the midst of that suffering and sorrow, that poverty and powerlessness, that weakness, that's where we find Jesus not on the thrones of earthly kings, but in the poverty and powerlessness of a manger in a stable and ultimately in the poverty and powerlessness of a cross. God gives a Savior who enters into our troubles so that we would not have someone who is unsympathetic to us, but one who knows what it is to be human, to suffer, to hurt, to be wounded, and he doesn't just enter into them, he bears them on our behalf so that one day we could be set free. He is the Savior who bears our troubles for this purpose so that he could also be the Savior who calms our fears. You know, Jesus, Jesus arrives in an unexpected way in those first seven verses, but God, God doesn't leave his son without a witness. But yet again, the witness comes in a strange way. He doesn't come to the, the powerful and the rich. He comes to where? The poor and the powerless. He comes to shepherds. In those days, what would have been perceived as the scum of the earth. And yet notice what it says in verses 8 and 9. In the same region, around the area of Bethlehem, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Here is the first sign that something is happening that is beyond human comprehension. God is at work in the world. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, if you've ever read over the Bible, uh, this should not surprise you. You know, when an angel appears, when the glory of God appears, people generally do just one thing. They tremble and they fall on their faces. They do what Isaiah does in Isaiah 6. He sees the glory of the Lord, and what does he say? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. Uh, in Luke 1, when the angel appears to Zechariah, what does Zechariah do? The priest in the house of the Lord. He fears when Mary, who will be the mother of Jesus, has the angel come to her. It says that she was greatly troubled, so afraid the angel has to say to her, do not be afraid. Why? Because of the problem that has plagued all of mankind since Adam and Eve first rebelled in the garden. 
sin. There's a reason that Adam and Eve, when they hear that the Lord is in the garden, there's a reason they go and hide. Because they know what we know and realize only in full when we stand in the presence of the God who made us, that God is holy and we are not. And we cannot stand in his presence. And yet notice what the angel says. He doesn't say, you're right to be afraid, and I'm here to tell you of the news of one who's going to destroy you. He calms them. Look at what he says in verse 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news, not of great fear, but of great joy. That will be for all the people. Good news for who? Not just for some people. For all. Good news not just for the Jew, but as Luke is going to show as he moves into the book of Acts, for the Gentile too. Good news not just for people born in this age, but for people born in every age. Good news... Not just for people that look like us and think like us and talk like us and dress like us and vote like us, but even for those who are radically different in every way. Good news for you. Because if this good news is for all, that means there's no one who's exempt. There's no category of person that God says this is not good news for. It doesn't matter where or when you were born. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter if the people who know you best have looked at you and seen you and said you are the scum of the earth. And it doesn't matter if you look at yourself and you say the same. God says to you what he says to the shepherds, fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. And what is the good news of? God's peace. Look at verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this, this will be a sign for you. Notice this. The sign is not the angels. The sign that God is in the midst of his people. It's not the glorious angels with their great chorus and song. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger in a feeding trough. Where is God yet again? He is in the humble things. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This isn't the peace of Caesar. This isn't that uneasy peace that is born of violence and maintained by oppression. That peace that you don't get unless you submit to Roman rule in every single way and you suffer if you don't. This isn't the peace that comes from a full bank account because that bank account, it can be emptied in a moment and it will be taken from you in death. This isn't the peace, that relative peace, maybe you had at Thanksgiving because you avoided talking about politics with your relatives. This isn't the peace from feeling like your football team is pretty good and maybe they're going to win out because I can tell you this, there is no peace with that. I'm anxious all the time. No, the peace, the peace God is talking about here, it is peace of an altogether different and deeper kind. Peace not given to those who have earned it, 
because they bowed to every jot and tittle of God's rule. But peace offered to those who have done nothing to earn it and in fact have done everything to lose it. It's peace that says to those who are drowning in darkness because of sin, in this child your sins are forgiven. It's peace that doesn't just deal with the symptoms of our sin, but the cancer itself. It is peace that eradicates that evil that has plugged this world of death and says that all of this world, with all of its brokenness, will one day be made new and fresh, and sin will be gone and will be here no more. And that peace, it is peace that comes through a person. The child that, as Isaiah 9, 6 says, and the echoes here echo, the child who is what? Given to us. One who, unlike Caesar, is not the son of a God, but the son of God, who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Luke says, Caesar, he stole God's titles. They're not his, they're mine. And the peace this son brings, it is peace that comes not through violence, but from self-giving love and sacrifice. Because the same God who intended the son to be born in a manger, poor and powerless, he intended him also to be hung on a cross. In your place and mine so that we who have believed in him can know this with confidence. As surely as he has died, so too have our sins. As surely as he has been raised, so too, though we suffer now and experience hardship now, so too one day will we be raised, not in part but in whole, and not just us, but all of this world with us. And in the face of that good news, oh, there's only one response. It's to look to the one from whom it comes. The God who has initiated and pursued, who has so loved and wanted people who did not love and want him, he has sent the Son to save us. What do you do when confronted with news like that? You don't start claiming your own goodness. You don't cling to the temporary peace that is offered in the things of this world. You do what the shepherds did. And you leave your proverbial flocks and you run to the place where the sun is found. And you give him glory with all that you possess. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace with those with whom he is pleased. You run to the Father who so wanted and loved you, he sent the Son to save you. That's what Daniel Neri's mother did. In Daniel's autobiography, which tells the story of his mom's conversion and how they became refugees from Iran living in Oklahoma, he tells, he tells of what it cost her and she knew it when she went into it. She was Iranian. She was a Muslim. 
She was what was called a Syed, which means she was born of the line of Muhammad, which means she's not just a Muslim, which means converting can lead to death. She is actually from the bloodline of Muhammad himself. She is doubly sacred, which means converting is doubly blasphemous. She was wealthy. She was a medical doctor who had spent 10 years getting her degree and had a clinic that was successful and running. She had a, a husband with a successful job and she had kids and a family, a life. She had the ability as an Iranian to travel out of the country and back into the country. And she knew that if she converted to Jesus, that meant all of that was going to go away. Everything was going to be taken from her and she would be living under the judgment of death if she could not escape. And yet when she heard the good news, she just couldn't help herself. I can't improve on Daniel's words, so I'm just going to read what he wrote. Sima, my mom, read about Jesus and became a Christian. Not just a regular one who keeps it in their pocket. She fell in love. She wanted everybody to have what she had to be free to realize that in other religions with their temporary peace, you have rules and codes and obligations to follow and earn good things. But all you had to do with Jesus was believe. He was the one who died for you. And she believed. When I tell this story in Oklahoma, this is the part where grown-ups always interrupt me. They say, okay, but why? Why did she convert? But I don't have an answer for them. How can you explain why you believe anything? So I just say what my mom says when people ask her. She looks them in the eye with a begging hope that they'll hear her. And she says, because it's true. Why else would she believe it? It's true and it's more valuable than $7 million in gold coins and thousands of acres of Persian countryside and 10 years of education to get a medical degree that is worthless in the United States and all your family, and a home, and even maybe your life. My mom wouldn't have made the trade otherwise. If you believe it's true, that there is a God, and he wants you to believe in him, and he sent his son to die for you, then it has to take over your life. It has to be worth more than everything else, because heaven's waiting on the other side. That, or Sima, my mom is insane. There's no middle. You can't say it's a quirky thing she thinks sometimes because she went all the way with it. If it's not true, my mom made a giant mistake. But she doesn't think so. She had all that wealth, the love of all those people she helped in her medical clinic. They treated her like a queen. She was a Syed. And she's poor now. People spit on her on buses. She's a refugee in places where people hate refugees. With a husband who hits harder than a second-degree black belt because he's a third-degree black belt. And she'll tell you it's worth it because Jesus is better. It's true. We can keep talking about it, keep grinding our teeth on why she converted, since it turned the fate of everybody in the story. It's why we're here hiding in Oklahoma. We can wonder and question and disagree. You can be certain she's dead wrong. But you can't make Sema agree with you. It's true. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. This whole story hinges on it. Sema, who was such a fierce Muslim that she marched for the Iranian revolution, who studied the Quran the way few people ever do, 
read the Bible, and she knew in her heart that it was true. She heard the good news of Luke 2. The good news of God's peace for all people. Of a Savior who bears our troubles so that He could calm our fears. Of one who does not promise to release us from all trouble and pain in this life, but who tells us, quite frankly, that it comes with a cross with a very real cost. But who also tells us this. The cross doesn't end in death. The cross ends in resurrection life with the Savior who has come and who is coming again and who will one day make all things new. As Daniel said, the whole story hinges on it. That's the news that remade her world. That's the news the angels announced to the shepherds. That's the news that Luke announces to us today. May that news remake our worlds even as it remade Seamus. Amen. Gracious Father, we come to you this morning grateful to have a God who so loves and cares for us that he would send his son to save us. And we ask, Father, would, would you take those places where we're blind? Would you take those places, Lord, where we have resisted you or run from you, Lord, where we have put our hope in anything outside of you? And Lord, would you lift our faces and would you turn them, Lord, so that we could see your Son in all his beauty? And would you give us hearts to receive him and to experience the good news of his peace? We pray this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.